guys. Welcome to Everything's Relative. This is a podcast where we talk about all the unexpected shit that can happen when you do a mail-in DNA kit. I'm Eve Sturgis, and this is episode 13. So this episode is a little bit different than anything I've done before, and I'm excited to change it up a little. Um, As you know, I've talked about a lot, hoping to continue to explore all the topics within the NPE world. And so far, I've mostly done conversations with people who have mailed in a test and discovered something very shocking about their uh, family, namely that they, that a parent, mostly their fathers are not their fathers. Um, But there's so many other elements and layers and I feel like every direction that I turn there's another thing I don't know I've never thought about uh, and I imagine that I'm not the only one and so we've got to talk about all of it if if I can manage to to get it all here on the podcast I will so um so that's all to say that this is a talk this tape is a talk with an old friend named Aaron He and I went to middle school together in Petaluma, Petaluma Junior High, uh, and then he moved away, and I never saw or heard from him again. And then uh, he listens to my podcast, and he reached out and said, hey, I work with genealogists for a living uh, and as as an archivist, and I have some, some thoughts about all of this, so let's talk. And I was like, yes, definitely, let's talk. So we managed to connect. Uh, he was on vacation in Maine, and uh, we tracked him down in his, his, I'm imagining it was a cabin on a lake, but I'm not sure that he actually told me that. Uh, we talked for a little bit about what we've been up to for the past 20 years, uh, which was super like awkward, because how do you even start to explain like what you've been up to since the age of 13? And I would play all of that for you. Except uh, it would make this really long, and I only think it's interesting to two or three people who are somewhat familiar with Petaluma and the Phoenix Theater and the culture of the mid-90s. Um, so I've saved you from that. Uh, but he, he's come on to talk about his experiences and who he's met and who he's helped with genealogy projects. And we talk about who the people are that are interested in family history. And uh, I know you've heard me say on here that I don't quite relate to the to the interest in family trees that that people have that sort of like motivate or provoke this whole experience for so many people. So, you know, Aaron is someone who works with with these people every day. So so he had some thoughts about that. So we we explore that. But what I think Aaron really wants to talk about and um, and what I I can't get out of my head now that we've talked about it and you'll hear me just be sort of dumb and stunned the whole conversation I just go like uh uh-huh wow okay um and what he really wants to talk about is the way that race plays in all of this and with race socioeconomic status and systemic poverty and um which is all a, a really big part of American history and um it's so ignored or skipped or omitted when we talk about American history so often. Um, and when I say we, I guess I'm talking about white people. And uh, American history plays a huge role in our family histories. So it, it's, I think that we just have to talk about it. Um, and so without um, discounting other countries, we're talking about American history is what I'm <laughs> thinking about right now. Um, so, okay, so so I have to admit that Aaron, I, Aaron and I talk about, but we, we barely get specific, talking about things that can be uncomfortable and sometimes even scary for me. I am working on my personal life to get bolder at discussing uncomfortable things, especially as a white person, as a person of privilege, um, and, and it also like my handling my fragility and trying to acknowledge more and more out loud when I haven't thought of something or realized an element of the world for minority people that I've had the privilege of not knowing or thinking about. Uh, So Aaron says things that made me realize I hadn't really given much thought to what it would be like to go through the DNA experience as a person of color. Um, Somewhere in my brain, I knew that many or most African Americans can trace their ancestry to slavery. And by default, I guess I knew that lots of white ancestry leads to slave ownership. 
but I hadn't ever taken the time to think about what that meant or how different the exploration of a history can be for people uh, from different walks of life or for people who come from huge cultural traumas. We talk about the Holocaust and about slavery, and I imagine a lot of what I'm talking about applies to other minority peoples and other cultural traumas and experiences and uh, populations of diaspora. But uh, but what what we're saying, I think, and what Aaron is is saying is that genealogy as a as a hobby and an interest is it's about genealogy but what one thing that it so far has been about is being white and it's also about being middle class it's a it's a it takes funds and resources and um so what's exciting is that dna tests these mail-in dna tests are changing the landscape and altering the accessibility of history for large populations of people and That isn't all we talk about, but it's what struck me, and I just want to call it out before we even roll the tape. Um, It's interesting and exciting, and I want to, I just, I want to be clear what it is that I, what I thought about and what I think we're talking about. Um, So here's my conversation with Aaron. I hope the things he's asking me to think about are as interesting to you as they are to me. Uh, So I'll see you on the other side, and we'll talk about one other element of interest I gained from this talk. Um, And in the meantime... Happy Friday. Hey, it's me jumping in real quick to interrupt one more time just to make sure that it's very clear that the conversation that Aaron and I have, he mentions two different organizations that he has worked for as an archivist. He does not represent them in any way. All of his words are his own. Just want to make sure that's clear. Thank you. Aaron, you've got your master's in library science with a, explain that to me again, with a specialty in archival Sure. I have a, a Master of Library and Information Science, and I have a specialization okay. in archival studies. And that led you to work in New York where? I worked uh, for a couple of years in New York at a place called the American Jewish Joint Distribution uh-huh. Committee, which everybody there and elsewhere calls okay. JDC for short. And JDC was this aid organization founded around World War I uh, to help Jewish refugees from that conflict. And of course, World War I was not just in Europe. It kind of stretched into the present day you know, mm-hmm. Middle East and North Africa, where there were Jewish communities. And so the organization sprung up to, to bring American Jewish communities and American Jewish philanthropic communities together to provide aid to those migrants. So they did that in World War One, and then uh, this right. other World War came up that was kind of uh, impactful <laughs> yeah, to the Jewish really community. Yeah, they really had some work to do, especially yeah. in Europe. Yeah, right. Um, so what I did there, for the most part, uh, was processing archival records of of mostly the immediately post World War Two era, but something that JDC did. And this was not uh, specifically my project, but something JDC did was to help connect people, right? People were fleeing Europe. People were people who came out of um, concentration camps and military prisons were just kind of being sent places and ending up where they ended up. And there's no internet. And if you're those folks, there's no telephone or nobody to call. And so JDC compiled lists of who was where who was on uh-huh, what ship, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, going where, going to America, going here and there. And they had this this ability to help families wow. connect back to each other after World War II, um, you know, help survivors connect with their families. And those lists have lived on, uh-huh. the physical lists and the physical passenger lists and the kind of ID cards for different people that came in contact with JDC. And those have all been digitized. Uh, there's a great wow. digital project uh, at jdc.org, probably <laughs> slash archives. I can't actually remember. Um, called this names index uh, based on these lists. And you can go now and see kind of who was, was moving around where and see the original kind of cards, people that were, that were yeah. typed up or written up whenever someone came in contact with the JDC in any of their um, mm-hmm. kind of services. And 
and that's a huge reference now for um, Jewish American folks doing family history and genealogy who may know, well, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-grandmother, they came after the war. I know they showed up in New York or they showed up in mm-hmm. Baltimore or wherever they showed up. And, and I don't, I don't really know. They didn't tell stories or they mm-hmm. died before I was born or whatever. Um, but you can, you can figure out, you know, when they showed up and, and who else from the family might've come and things like that. So it's a really powerful tool. I was working more with the administrative records, which were um, powerful in a very boring way. Uh, and they spoke to the, just really the dedication of the JDC staff in that era, um, just working tirelessly to, to provide for displaced persons and refugees, um, but not as, not as thrilling in a kind of one by one name right. by name sense. Right. So it was the JDC, so they had branches or, um, or agents working um, in places beyond New York city. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, you know, and, and I should say it's, currently still active as an international aid organization, it is less, um, it's non-denominational now, basically. Uh, they do all kinds of aid around the world to Jewish communities and to other communities. Um, but no, I mean, during World War II, after World War II, there were offices everywhere. And there were, I mean, agents makes it sound like... Um, sort of, yeah, kind of yeah. spy thriller thing, but they had employees or, or what we would now call, I don't know what we would call <laughs> right. program coordinators. <laughs> program coordinators. Case, um, case workers. Yeah. Program coordinators. And yeah. right. Case. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very much social work. Exactly. Um, so case workers um, for in established offices. And then also, um, you know, as things would pop up. So there's, there was this massive evacuation of Jews in Yemen in now I think 1948. I could be wrong on the year. It's mm-hmm. been a while since I looked at all the records related to it. But, you know, JDC, I think, was known and probably is known for being able to kind of mobilize very quickly and develop a plan and implement it. So they contracted with these uh, airlines, mm-hmm. you know commercial, you know, freight airlines or, or just kind of, uh, what do you call that? Oh, there's my dog working. Um, so they were able to, you know, contract with airlines, get planes to, you know, make some agreement with the, whatever government was in Yemen to say, Hey, if we come and and bring air transport, can we move these people out? Okay, we can. Well, we'll hire, turned out to be Alaska Airways. (laughs) I don't know why it was Alaska Airways. I guess, I mean, whatever, a lot of the air travel right. in the North uh, and the Arctic is this kind sure, of hired, sure. you know, cargo, et cetera. Um, so charter, that's the word I've been looking for. So this charter, you know, so they chartered a bunch of planes and they evacuated all these folks out. And then, right. and then I think they were out of Yemen and right. probably did not have anyone there as soon as they were done. Um, but yeah, they responded all over the world in, so cool. in that era. That's so cool. Uh, good. That's great to know. So, so talk to me um, a little bit about what uh, what not, in a this is not my this is not my ego asking, but what what about my podcast? Uh, did you sort of feel connected to, or that that thought you thought you've got something to talk about, and it's and it's about being an art archivist in this place, and um, and working with people well, so, yeah. on genealogy. And I have to admit that I actually, uh, I'm, I, I'm sort of like struggling with this, but I just, I don't, I, this whole experience has came to me so unexpectedly. Um, and part of that is that I'm not, I wasn't interested in my ancestry. So the, the, the people that are, I definitely, right. um, I, I don't, that's not something that, that I understand. So you, you maybe understand right. it. So, talk so to really it's right. Well, I don't know if I do. So it's really the following job in Kentucky before my current job at the public library um, that brought me much into much closer contact with genealogists and family historians. So at JDC, they were mostly kind of interacting, you know, we had digitized most of this stuff. So folks didn't have to come see us. But when I moved to Kentucky in 2013, 
it was to take a job at the Filson Historical Society, which is the oldest and largest private historical society in Kentucky. Uh, like most states, Kentucky has a, a state historical society that's a public institution, but the Filson started in 1884, and that's before there was a Kentucky Historical Society run by the state. And it is a pretty major genealogical library for the Upper South and the Ohio Valley region. It is a pretty major repository for paper collections, manuscript collections, historical photos, and lots of other materials, artifacts, a great museum collection. And again, I want to clarify, I don't work there anymore. I worked there for about five years. And I worked in a department that was partially about archives and manuscripts and cataloging and partially was about a public facing reference services for our researchers. And those researchers were academics and academic historians and people coming to look at our collections for whatever uh, extremely obtuse <laughs> academic purpose. And I say that with love. I mean, it would, there would be really, really bizarre requests that were fascinating. Um, but the other large part of the Filson's patron group or researcher group are genealogists and family historians. Uh -huh. And that was new for me too. So I'm part of the American Jewish experience that kind of starts in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the early 20th uh -huh. century. And I know what countries my ancestors came to the Lower East Side from, and sometimes I know what part of what countries they came from, and that's kind of enough for me, personally. Is, is that information that you grew up knowing, or you researched as an adult? Yeah, no, I mean, the, you know, stories were there in my family, and I knew that I had German ancestors and Russian ancestors and Hungarian ancestors, um, and... And, and again, I think the specifics of that were less interesting to me, and maybe it's because I grew up in New York, not far from New York City, that it really, but to me, kind of history begins in that immigrant mm -hmm. experience of the Lower East Side of Manhattan, turn of the century. That's, that is my grandparents. My grandparents were, well, all but one were the children of immigrants. One was an immigrant. And that's where they, they grew up there in Brooklyn and their experience to mm -hmm, me, I think, mm -hmm. is, was kind of the beginning of time as far as my family was concerned. And that's not because nobody would talk about the war and my family absolutely mm -hmm. lost, you know, lost family members in the Holocaust. Uh, again, directly, my direct family had come over in the teens, mostly, even before, before and after World War One. But that just that's just seemed like where history began to me. And that's still it still kind of does. I mean, I'm interested in the European Jewish experience. I'm interested in European history uh, and I'm interested in American history. But it it wasn't something finding my seventh great grandfather on whichever side was not mm -hmm. something I even realized people did. Because I was coming in as an, so at the Filson, I was coming in as an archivist and I was coming in to catalog materials and preserve historic film. They have some really neat amateur film from the, the even the twenties and then the thirties and forties. And then here I was put at this reference desk and was asked to, you know, serve folks working on their family history and genealogy. And Kentucky has a long history. Uh, I have a friend who's uh, his brother is the, I believe the eighth generation to live in their, in wow. their family house, their family wow. homestead wow, wow, wow. in Louisville. I mean, it was when it was built, it was mm -hmm. yeah farmland and woods and it's now part of suburban Louisville. But, you know, people have right. been in the same place for eight generations, which to me, again, just based on my experiences is, is kind of dumbfounding. Um, I imagine, I imagine your family hasn't been in California for eight generations. Because not a lot of white people have been. Um, so that was interesting. And and so I was there for about five years. And throughout that time, I would spend part of every single week on that reference desk, answering questions for genealogists, helping them find resources, answering phone calls and emails, um, looking at county histories and state histories and tax lists and cemetery indexes and census records and all of the tools 
that were, and, and really still are, the mainstay of genealogists and family historians, which I'm finally answering your question. What I heard <laughs> in your podcast was was this kind of interesting, you know, the genetic part of genealogy is, is has definitely, you know, it's become a big factor in genealogy and family history. Um, but it's replacing, well, not replacing, it's there in addition to all of this kind of, uh, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. pound in the sidewalk looking for that one death certificate and that one birth certificate and that one naturalization record and that one land claim that people spend decades. not just years, yeah. but decades on. And so I just, I hoped maybe <laughs> that it would be of interest to kind of turn some of this on its head and, and show what it, even what genealogy has been about for a long time. And I don't think it's all about uh, very wholesome things necessarily. And to kind of just, you know, look into that a little bit and, and have folks who are just starting to think about what genealogy is because of genetic testing, because of finding relationships with living relatives to think about some of the other Mm -hmm. things it does. I'm, I am I'm I'm so excited, um, and it I feel so stupid because I, I I when you when you when you contacted me I was like oh of course like why haven't I thought about talking to to someone who who knows about this about genealogists beyond just a person that says like I'm the I'm a family historian and then I did ancestry.com and this happened um, because I, yeah I don't even. Um, understand how how it gets started i sort of i mean i i'm not <laughs> i'm not like so so blind to 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 family interest but um but yeah pe- people that are digging and digging and then when you said spending spending decades to to under to map all this stuff out um i'm i am i'm curious to what end uh, well Right. <laughs> um, and I want to say that I worked with just darling, wonderful, lovely researchers who were doing family history and genealogy. And I worked with darling and lovely people who were doing academic historical research. And I worked with <laughs> less easy to work with people in both of those regards. And really nothing that I want to say about genealogy is is you know about you know the individuals pursuing this but it is mm-hmm. about what it's what it's for and what causes people to get into it and and to me I guess and this is relating back to my own interest or lack of interest in not in family history but in in genealogy is that it's about mm-hmm. specificity mm-hmm. right so I can say that my ancestors almost certainly lived in, you know, shtetls, Jewish communities in Eastern Europe in the 16th and 17th and 18th and 19th century. And so to me, that means, oh, okay, I want to go read a book about that experience, Mm -hmm. of which there are many. And I will learn what that experience is like, and then I will, in my mind, place my ancestors Mm -hmm. there. Because it's not about a sing, you know, an individual ancestor in an individual right. place for me. But what is going on in genealogy is not well. We're Scots Irish, so there's the Scots Irish experience, and I don't want to say that people with that lineage aren't also interested in the general experience. Sure. They often are. They often travel to the places where their family came from. But it's about saying my sixth great uncle, four times removed, was this person. And the kind of, you know, a pretty inevitable place for that to go. Not all, not all genealogists, I think we're looking for this, but a pretty inevitable place for it to go is that my sixth great uncle four times removed was mm-hmm. King Edward or King James or, or like Royal, you know, Royal. Yeah. Important. So royal, no, important. important um, right. Well, yeah, royal. So there are lineage societies, right? Um, you know, lineage societies, which um, the example people probably know in America are the daughters of the American Revolution right. and the sons of the American Revolution. There are there's a whole there are whole constellations mm-hmm. of lineage mm-hmm. societies: the Mayflower Society, and when you get 
back across the ocean to to um, especially England, but other countries as well. You have these lineage societies saying, "Well, we are all the people right. descended from this monarch or this family," and you know, I I think it's fine for people to take pride in that. For me personally, uh, it comes up against kind of um, just this difference in how I see history and and kind of your own place in it because many people who came in to do research were descendants of people who fought in the civil war and as often as not you would be descended from people who fought on both sides mm-hmm. of the civil war that's not at all unusual um and i'm not saying anyone expressed any you know particular <laughs> preference for either side but Nonetheless, I guess what's important to me when looking at history, it's neat to be related to Ulysses S. Grant, but at the same time, you neither, Mm. or Sherman, I guess would be a better example. So, um, you know, by today's standards, Sherman was a war criminal, right? His march to the sea kind of really bringing the war to civilians all across the South. And... If you are descended from Sherman, I guess my point would be that you neither, you're not, I would not hold you responsible for what he did that would now be called war crimes. And I also wouldn't credit you for his um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) ingenuity, if that's what that was, and in a creative way of, of waging war that was very effective for the Union. So the personal relationship to history is an interesting concept that I think operates differently for, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for different people Um, where I, you know, pride in your ancestry. I don't, I think, (laughs) I think you can have a healthy pride in your ancestry. um, But I also think it's necessary to kind of um, marry that to an understanding of the limits of, of that, of the impact of your ancestry, I guess. Uh, So you, so and and so in your in your position, were there so there was people that were coming in just just looking for their own, their own um, just like private citizens coming in looking with everybody else, yeah, right, right for the most part, and and there's something really important that I that I want to say about that, which is that for the most part it was individuals it was individuals with time on their hands, um, often retirees. Um, but that requires being able to retire. And it's also very often people who can travel. The Filson had in-person researchers and, and does now from from all over the world. And and that might be, you know, the most distant visitors are probably academic researchers. We had researchers from Scotland and from China and from Germany and, and from all across the U.S. and from Canada and and that's not so unusual um, for a researcher to be on um, sabbatical or, or coming for a conference and doing research where they are that's relevant to their topic. But many genealogists, too, were coming from certainly around the U.S. and sometimes beyond. And so you have to have the ability to do that. And then, and then world's more important, and I think really related to, to what I think you're interested in, is that in order to do genealogy or family history, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the paper way, I mean, the research way, right. you have to have been documented. So, and I don't, well, I kind of do, but I don't mean that immediately in the sense of documented mm-hmm. or undocumented, like immigration, although same thing. Uh, but you have to be somebody who your ancestor has to have left a trace on paper and your ancestor has to have left a trace that has a first name and a last name and a location. And so at the largest part of that in North America in the 18th and 19th century is right. white people, mm-hmm. male people, mm-hmm. landowners, especially. Um, and there, it's harder to do genealogy right. of women it's certainly harder to do genealogy of non-white people, right. especially black people in the United States before and after the Civil War. It is in some cases possible to use the records of 
slave owners to do genealogy for black families. That was one of the most fascinating and interesting and, and to me personally meaningful things that I was able to do while performing that kind of reference service was to work with black family. Yeah, that was my going to be the question. Is how did that feel? Yeah. Right. So black family historians obviously hit a roadblock because their ancestor probably only had a first name. Um, the way that we find names of people if, before they were on censuses is in the records of these families. The, the you know historical societies across the South have family records, family manuscript collections, and you would have wills and estates and tax inventories and human beings, right. slaves right. were taxable property. They were, right, they could be willed to other people. So you'll be looking at a will and it'll say, you know, the furniture and the livestock and the carts and, you know, three men ages, you know, 19, 20 and 25 and two women ages 17 and 33 and that two is... children ages seven and nine. Mm -hmm. And they have a value assigned to them. That is so great. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, I'm not, yeah. I mean, forget, you know, my experience, the more important experience is, is the experience of that mm -hmm. black genealogist or black family historian. Right. But I don't know what their experiences was. My experience was that I went from JDC in New York, where my daily existence was looking at records of an organization trying mm -hmm. to deal with the aftermath of the Holocaust and traded that for I mean, I should say the Filson has collections stretching right into the 21st century and going all the way back to the 17th century, at least. But most of the, you know, a lot of the research was mm -hmm, mm -hmm. antebellum Kentucky, which was a slave state. So, you know, part of the experience was mm -hmm. to find, you know, a slip of paper that's a name and a dollar mm -hmm. amount, and it's signed by the owner or the, or both the former owner and the next owner of this person. And that's not a lot to go on for a genealogist to get back to the point here of, of finding your family and where you came from. Um, so the roadblocks are, are pretty incredible for non-white and to some extent non-male genealogists and family historians. And there's an inequity there, I guess. I mean, nobody has to <laughs> go do their family history. Um, but this is but this is where something like genetic testing, when you have a large enough data set, right. comes in and really allows. Um, I know that that um, black people interested in this kind of history are going to genetic tests to find out more about where, for right. instance, in Africa, their ancestors might have come from if their ancestors were slaves in Africa. Um, and that. To me, yeah, is, yeah, is great because yeah. it allows access. So again, I think we've covered that you and I were really interested in finding our, our you know, deep genealogical yeah, past. Yeah. But if you are, and mm -hmm. if you're a black woman whose ancestors were in the South during slavery, you now have an avenue open to you that, you know, where before, at the very best, you might find the papers of the family mm -hmm. who owned your ancestors, and that happens. And then you can learn about... Yeah, right. The family that owned your right. ancestors, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is something. And you can learn where right. their land was, but it's not learning about your family. You know, it di it didn't it didn't ever occur to me till you described it that way as having gone from the from the JDC to the to the to the place in Kentucky. Um, that those are both it's both lineages. Um, and this is a grand generalization, but like both lineages are like rooted in trauma. Like there's so much diaspora in both. Um, and I'm suddenly wondering if there's something to people's need to, um, to organize data in order to process trauma. Um, I don't, I don't, do, do, I, I'm just suddenly considering it from, from considering this through through the trauma lens something something about you saying like specificity um tri triggered something for me um, 
Yeah. I mean, I think, I think definitely in the case of JDC and just as being an organization created around these traumatic disruptive events in the lives of families and individuals and communities. And in the case of the Filson, it's a little hard to say. I mean, I want to say that, I mean, the Filson continues to have a really incredible staff and a mission that is ever growing in its scope in terms of, of who it documents. I'm not, I mean, in 1884, it was founded by a group of white men, older, well-to-do white men, and that's what it was about at the time. That's not what the Filson is about now. But I do think, at least in the in the founding sense, less so in the case of the Filson. But in the case of of white or black genealogists, yeah, absolutely, I can I can see that, and people, yeah, needing to gather gather this information and organize it probably fills, you know, fills some need to do that and create order. It's something I will say that I (laughs) perhaps shouldn't, Um, you know, I just, there are definitely people I experienced, you know, people coming to look for their family histories, bringing, bringing a kind of full lens of, of the implications Mm -hmm. of, Mm -hmm. of their histories to it. And, and people who seemed not to be, and I don't know, I don't, they were there to get information. I don't know what they thought about their research when they got home, but it definitely seemed like there was a spectrum of, of concern or interest. And, and you know what, the slaveholder in Virginia might just be a stepping stone on the way back to King Charles so maybe mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't weigh on your mind, um, and there were definitely people, you know, for whom it it did matter. And in fact, finding out, you know, what kind of implication their family had in in slavery was was an important step for mm-hmm. them, and they wanted to directly address it. Uh, so yeah. I think there's a whole spectrum for that in family history and genealogy. Yeah, that's so yeah 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 absolutely. Um, that makes that makes sense to me, um, and and um, my brain. Sorry, my my now I'm just I'm feeling so blown away that I'm almost speechless. Um, but at least <laughs> some of these ideas. But um, you're sure not blown away <laughs> by having a seven week old. Yeah, I'm also, <laughs> could also yeah, be sure. a totally acceptable sure, reason. <laughs> um, so I don't know the last time I took a shower. Uh, but um, okay. So, do you know? Just out of curiosity, do you know if you you do end up being a descendant of of somebody important? Um, is the primary purpose just a family pride? And then I know you can be a part of the group of like the daughters of the American Revolution. But do, does that um, do you get anything, or is it is it as far as you know, pride more than anything. Like you just get to be in the club. I, th- I think in an extremely small number of circumstances, and 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 I definitely had researchers coming because of kind of family estate questions, or having to do with how land sure. was was partitioned. But that. First of all, the farther you go back, the less mm-hmm. likely that is to bear any any fruit. And I, you know, I don't think that's the motivation for most folks. I think I think there's a lot of pride um, mm-hmm. involved mm-hmm. in being able to join the lineage societies. And the way a lot of lineage societies work is that you prepare your application and you document everything to the best of your ability, and you send it in, and then their in-house genealogists. Mm-hmm see if it all adds up. And so there's a, there's a challenge right. aspect. I think there's a kind of a reward aspect. So, so having correctly and adequately documented yourself to be a descendant of someone who fought in the revolution yeah, um, totally. is a big task. And I, th- I think the reward is in having, I think the reward mm-hmm. is having external mm-hmm. validation. That's, that's kind of the instant reward. 
of the lineage societies, but they also have, you know, they have annual meetings and they have get togethers and they have, you know, it's a very, as far as I can tell, you know, convivial and congenial community thing, you know, you, you kind of join a club. Um, right. Right. And again, a community with some mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very noticeable limits. <laughs> I mean, they make them, they make those limits very obvious right, um, by right, being the stated structure of the community. But, um, but it's also, I mean, I will say, I, you know, I can be critical of that, but I can also say from people I have known involved in them that it is not, it is not mm-hmm. the only thing right. that those people are involved in in their lives. So um, I think it would be unfair to say that they exist solely to exclude anyone who, who doesn't meet some criteria in their life. I'm just like looking over my notes. I have so many words like scribbled everywhere. Um, so did you, and while you were working there, did you have any experience with people um, with genetic, that, like, did you watch anything change with genetic testing as far as people's genetic experience, <laughs> genetic genealogical yes. experience? Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, the historical society was not, you know, directly involved mm-hmm. in genetic testing in any way. I wonder about ways we might, researchers might, mm-hmm. uh, historians might use that data eventually. But what what I would hear and see would be genealogists and family historians talking about it, uh, discussing how it had impacted their research, because it, it, it can mm-hmm. be a powerful tool for confirming right you know so really what that's about is making it's kind of saying well ancestry dna or 23 and me says i'm related to this other person right Right. who's already in this lineage society Mm -hmm. and i think my paperwork lines up with theirs and this is a good confirmation that it probably is right i should say i have no idea how each or any of the lineage societies Mm -hmm. look at genetic testing or if they do at all when they look at kind of admissions or however it works but it was definitely a topic of conversation in the reading room of hey this really helped me confirm and it told me that i should keep looking right up this alley and not down this alley and then the flip side of that is that if you have a genetic test and it's uh, and you've been hunting in scotland and you know been hunting in in Kentucky and back to Virginia and back to Scotland or England. And it looks like you are mostly central European. Then, you know, something's up. And and this, of course, this kind of in, in, in the most headline attracting way leads to things Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. some of your interviews with people where something, something really comes up that was unknown or that was hidden or, you know, couldn't possibly go along with, with the stories that a person has been told. I, I have not heard anything like that. I've heard more subtle, you know, well, if I'm 75% out of, you know, Eastern Europe, then, then it really couldn't be all of these ancestors in, in England or Northern Europe or wherever. Mm-hmm. So maybe one thread of this mm-hmm. is accurate. Did you find if, if, if genealogists ran into that kind of thing, um, once, once their research was combined with, with DNA results, uh, is that exciting because it means your, your research changes a different direction or is it devastating or does it just case by case basis because you've done all this research and it turns out you were wrong? Mm -hmm. I think it's case by case. And I think another part of the concern that relates to that was the idea that it would be because like with all new technologies, people kind of mm-hmm. people have ideas about it and they don't quite know how, you know, mm-hmm. it works until they, until they go look and they find out. Um, but the idea that the hundreds and hundreds of hours right. spent might be replaced mm-hmm. by a cheek swab. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's not, that's not the case. It's certainly not the case yet. But that was part of the kind of hubbub as well that I certainly experienced was even a little kind of mm-hmm. blowback of all oh, these people think they can just do a cheek swab and they're going to learn anything. But I know because I've seen, I've been to the county courthouse in 45 of Kentucky's 120 counties mm-hmm. and I'm going to go to the rest of them 
and I'm going to know. And, and there's something, you know, from a kind of historian researcher perspective, there's something to that. And I, I think, you know, it's hard to, I can't look down upon the legwork that I've seen genealogists do and the, you know, the doggedness in pursuing things. Um, but I think overall it has mostly moved Mm -hmm. to this can be a tool. This can help confirm things that will be exciting if it Mm -hmm. confirms something that I've been looking to confirm for a long time. And I, you know, I did not see any, I don't think I was ever present when someone, you know, got the email notification on their phone and opened it and found out that they're Irish and not Scottish or something. Sure. You know, I I didn't witness that in person. For the the biggest surprise. Yeah. Right. The reveal. Cool. Right. This is so much to think about. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah. I, uh. Is there anything else you want to tell me that, that you were waiting for me to ask about? Yeah, I mean, there's something, again, and I want to say this as many times as possible because mm-hmm. I'm still um, am dear friends with people at the Wilson Historical Society, mm-hmm. and I believe in what they do, and at JDC, and I believe in what they do, uh, and they are both great organizations. This is more of a... a uh, you know, mm-hmm. Southern historical, you know, it's a more of a Filson historical society thing that I witnessed happen. Um, and again, by well-meaning people, but there's a desire that I think might play into to some mm-hmm. of the more living family relative stuff that you're interested in. I have witnessed this intense desire for people to or in people to make these connections mm. happen no matter what, and kind of mm. no matter whether they exist. So handwriting in right. the 19th century right. and the 18th century was a lot different than handwriting today. Mm-hmm. Spelling was a lot less standardized, including with names and something that I would see with, with some frequency would be, Someone looking at a document, sometimes a you know mm-hmm. pretty rough, sometimes an original document um, on original paper, and sometimes a pretty rough facsimile or or microfilm of something that was already mm-hmm. deteriorating when it was filmed sixty years ago. And they need they need to find, um, you know, Sarah Smith in Adair County around seventeen ninety five. Right. And here's mm-hmm. Susan Smith in Adair County in 1795. And and I witnessed and overheard quite a bit of this could be Sarah, yeah. Don't you don't you think this could say Sarah? Or or don't don't you couldn't that say Sarah and not Susan? Or mm-hmm. or don't you think mm-hmm. that they must have just gotten it wrong and 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 it really is the person I needed to be. Mm-hmm. I definitely have seen that desire mm-hmm. drive genealogists and that is an emotion and a motivation right. that I assume is kind of shared mm-hmm. with folks now looking for living relatives, looking for uh, biological parents or children. And, and I know, you know, it was, if I was asked, if it was, if it was, excuse me, <laughs> reference librarian, Aaron, mm-hmm can you come and look at this and, and see what you think it says? I would mm-hmm. give my honest opinion always of what I thought it said. And, you know, and, and sometimes, right, I don't know, sometimes right. it looked really unclear and it could have said Susan or Sarah. And sometimes it definitely looked like it said Susan or it definitely looked like it said Sarah. And that goes in. And, and so there's a part of genealogy and family history that absolutely is people yeah. Yeah. taking mm-hmm. what they want mm-hmm. to from it. And, and you're the host right. of the podcast. You can figure right? out what yeah. that means. Uh, yeah, I know. Absolutely. But I do think it's relevant. Um, and I do think it connects these different processes. You know, finding mm-hmm. someone 300 years ago and finding somebody mm-hmm. now um, and wanting it, you yeah. know, and the way wanting it makes you, you know, makes you move yeah. ahead. And makes you, makes you see things, see things and think things and understand things in a, in a, in a very particular way. When you don't even know it, you don't even know what's happening. 
Wow. Aaron, this is amazing. Uh, right. This is amazing. All right. There's like so much I want to like, we could keep talking, I think for hours. Cause I, I feel like I'm just barely like my brain is just waking up to this, this whole universe that you've just introduced to me. Um, but we can't, we can't talk for hours. Uh, so, yeah. So, so I, like, I may just think about it and I may like email you some questions or I, I, I don't, um, this is, yeah, this is amazing. Sure. I could also, I mean, I want to say as a, as a person who left that world, um, and who was never quite in it for the genealogy and family history, but was there for the, uh, you know, the archives and the, and the sort of academic history. I can, I mean, I'm also happy to, you know, you could possibly have a more productive conversation with somebody who's much more a part of that world. Don't worry. I won't say you're an expert. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, no, this is just so. Thank heavens. So fascinating and has me sort of thinking largely about, about groups of people and then about my, and then it's hard, it's impossible for me not to consider my own identity and my understanding of genealogy or lack, lack of interest. Um, and now suddenly wondering now, but then, you know, like as soon as you started to describe handwritten papers, I was like, well, that sounds totally amazing. Um, I don't know. I'm just. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about, I mean, something else I can describe that happened. I mean, whether you need more here or not, um, is that, you know, when genealogical resources exist as, you know, published things like tax lists and, and um, you know, cemetery indexes and all these different things. And then, and that's kind of the, and censuses, and that's the meat of what family historians are, are looking through the Filson uh-huh. happened to have family papers from hundreds of families from, from Kentucky and the Ohio Valley. So sometimes, you know, a researcher would be working on a family that we happen to have the family papers of. And interestingly, sometimes that was of intense interest, as you would guess. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, I can see my great-great-grandfather's letters and see his handwriting that's incredible. Yes, please. I'll move to the archives right. reading room, which is more right. secure and stuff. Right. And, and I'll call up that stuff and I'll get to look through it. Wonderful. But sometimes that's mm-hmm. not, again, if it was just a step on getting back to, to King Charles or whomever, right. you know, sometimes folks didn't, you know, want to see that stuff. Um, right. Cause it was not, it wasn't about even kind of who the person right. was. It was about who that person was descended mm-hmm. from, which I'm not, you know, I'm not judging that. I just, I witnessed both. Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. for me, I would have been delighted to see that, that human aspect of my ancestor. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But that's just me. So interesting to like learn about what, what different people are, are, are interested in for lack of a more articulate way of saying, saying it, this really, this was like information, it was informational, but it, it tip, it sort of tipped into, um, into me thinking about a lot of, a lot of bigger things than a lot of more emotional things. Um, so thank you. And I'm so glad we did. I'm so glad we did this. <laughs> yeah. If it's only informational and, 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 you know, helpful to help think about other things. Great. Yeah, That's fine. Absolutely. I, that it could yeah. be of interest. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I'm just going to keep saying thank you over and over again. Um, if anything keeps you up in the middle of the night or wakes you up in the middle of the night uh, that you want to change or amend or edit out, just um, send me a message and I'm going to, um, but this will be edited a little bit, just a little bit um, for clarity and stuff. But uh, I don't know, like I'll be in, I'll be in touch. I'll let you know when this is coming. It'll be pretty soon. Uh, thank you so, so much. Okay. All right, Aaron. Maybe cool. I'll talk right. to you again in less than 26 years, no 24 years, 26 years. I hope so. All right. Thank you so nice much. Week. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> All right. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Hello. I'm back. It's Eve. Episode 13. We just listened to Aaron. Uh, there is this uh, one review on iTunes. 
where a I'm assuming it's a woman because her she's put her name. Uh, she does not like the way that I podcast, and one of the things she doesn't like is when I sort of disclaim or explain technical glitches or my breathing problems. Uh, she doesn't like my style. She would like things to be a little more produced and polished. So I'm sorry, but I'm doing it again. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit fast because my battery's running low, okay? So I'm sorry to that lady. <laughs> but um, if you feel like you don't mind the way that my podcast is or even enjoy it, you can go on iTunes and give it a review. You can write up some stuff. You can give me some stars. You can uh, do some rating. That'd be really helpful. So just a thought. Um, I promise I don't I don't read them all and I don't uh, harbor grudges against the people that say that I'm ridiculous. I promise. Um, okay, so let's get back to what we're talking about. Um, so I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Aaron. So the other thing uh, that I want to talk about, and we talked about it a little bit, but um, just like the race issue, I've been thinking a whole lot about and trying to organize in my mind. And I say in the podcast, like this needs to cook a little more. So I've been thinking about it and trying to work on explaining myself. Uh, and this comes from my experience as a therapist and and admittedly my own experiences with trauma. So there are some fairly new studies in the world of trauma treatment and uh, how our brain processes and why trauma affects us so specifically and debilitatingly different than other events. And there is a school of thought that focuses on the simple way that our brain cannot process emotion and data at the same time. And uh, different therapies are developing systems for helping people take emotional events and neurologically interpret them differently through the data processing system of our brains. So uh, I've experienced it in uh, therapy myself. Um, you'll probably hear, you hear a lot about it when we're talking about treating PTSD with soldiers. Um, EMDR is a, is a popular therapy that sort of works with these models. And um, so, so take all of that and, and trust, trust me and couch, couch the idea. Um, and so there's this other idea, right? This other, this other school of study that is currently uncovering the way that emotions and experiences are passed down through generations in a way that we haven't consider possible. So not only are we inheriting uh, eye color and hair color and, um, you know, the likelihood of certain kinds of cancers through our DNA, but we may also be inheriting trauma and emotions and experiences and histories. So um, there's this like specific scientific study called epigenetics. And uh, it's about like the parts that, that become a part of your DNA, but are or like, but are different from your DNA, DNA sequence. Um, I'm trying to explain it so fast. So it's about things being triggered by environmental stimuli. And uh, it argues that forces like trauma, shame, fear, um, war, you know, uh, become a part of our DNA. So some of the episode mentions it a little. We talk about inheriting the shame of our mothers or, you know, like other episodes I've said, like, um, I know Lori in the um, sort of episode two, I think she she talks about, you know, her mother must have been so ashamed to be pregnant with her. And now she inherited that shame and really struggles with shame her whole life. And I've heard that again and again. So that's a, a very brief and basic example of that kind of study and thought is that that fetuses are are experiencing the the emotions of their mothers while they're in the womb. So, okay, so are you all with me? So, okay, so what came to mind when I was talking with Aaron and trying to get a little bit to the bottom of why people are interested in their family histories, um, and so I'm putting all these these theories together and, and creating my own theory, um, just, just sort of like turning it over in my mind about the trauma we carry with us in our genes, and, and that's hard and debilitating and weakening and painful. And then we have this need to organize it into data so that we can move forward as a, as a person, as a people, to calm our souls, to, to move forward, for lack of a, of a better way of, of explaining it or imagining it. So, so it makes the most literal sense when talking about obvious trauma, like the Holocaust or slavery. But I'm, I'm thinking about ways that, that all people participated in these events, if not as slaves and not as Jews, then as slave owners or complacent citizens. And 
there may be a level of traumatic shame that's passing down through generations and and there's this like discomfort that that we're inheriting inheriting and and it's like begging to be organized so so that's that's my new idea and I don't I don't have anywhere to go with it or what to do with it and I have nothing to tell you except that I just I hope that's interesting to you and and to think about um so next week we're going to get back to a, a, a you know regular conversation with somebody who who experienced an NPE surprise and uh and then we're going to get in after that we're going to have another conversation with somebody who talks about an element of all of this that I had not considered and didn't realize I didn't know anything about and that is the world of sperm donors um and uh yeah so keep it up guys keep listening I hope you're having fun I hope you have a good weekend um you know follow us on social media and all that stuff go on our our patreon and try and support us and if you've got any questions, you can go ahead and contact me, Eve, at everythingsrelativepodcast.com. And I will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis is produced by Kaylin Egan and Eve Sturgis. Eve Sturgis is a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California, but the conversations she has on the podcast are not therapy sessions. Logo design by Ivy McNally and music used with permission by Goodbye the Band. Goodbye the Band.